Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to finish out John 4 this week and then move right into John chapter 5 next week, where we'll be for the next three weeks before we start a different series for the summer. Just a little bit of context for a reminder. We have seen Jesus' public ministry really take off and become much more public. Jesus, last week, as we looked at John, the middle of John chapter 4, we heard Jesus remind his disciples that the time for harvest was now. You see, Jesus had just met, remember, with this Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus had been down with his disciples in the region of Judea and was headed back to the region of Galilee, but in between those two was the region of Samaria. And on the way, Jesus had met with the Samaritan woman at the well while his disciples were in town buying food. And so Jesus has what would have been a very uncharacteristic conversation with this Samaritan woman. And so last week we saw the disciples come back and they're a bit surprised. Surprised, they don't say anything, but John tells us they were surprised. John was one of those disciples, so he would know. And he tells us that they didn't say anything, but you might assume that the looks that this woman received made it clear to her that it was now go. They didn't approve of Jesus talking with this woman who was not only a woman, but was also Samaritan. And so they wouldn't have approved of this as good Jewish people. But then we saw last week how this unlikely conversation with an unlikely person led to a number of unlikely people coming to just simply hear the word of Jesus. And upon hearing the word of Jesus, many of these unlikely people, the Samaritans, came to believe in Jesus and be saved. They declared, this man is the Savior of the world. We have heard his word and we have believed this man is the Savior of the world. They asked Jesus to stay with him for two days and Jesus has done that. And now we get to the end of chapter 4 and Jesus is going to continue his ministry, continue his travels up to Galilee. He's going to have another encounter that we're going to read about today. And today's message is entitled this, More Than a Spectacle. Looking at chapter 4, verses 27. Wait, is it 27? No, it's 43 to 54. That was last week. It's 43 to 54. And here's the big idea today. Many are attracted to Jesus, but only a few actually hear the word and believe. We're going to see in the passage today that many are attracted to Jesus, but only a few actually hear the word and believe. And this is going to have major implications for how we do ministry as a church. The question for us might be this, is our main focus as a church on external things that might be useful to attract people to Jesus and to the church, or are we mainly focused on faithfully proclaiming the Word of God so that people might hear it and believe? Now think about those things as we look through this passage today. And so, again, if you have your Bible, you're in John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 43 through 54. And our, our, our tradition is that we stand as we read the Word of God. And so if you're able to do that, please do. We'll read the Word of God. Let me pray first. Father, I just echo the prayer that we just prayed in song. Would you come? Awaken our hearts. 
there might even be hearts here that, though physically beating, are spiritually dead. Would you come and replace that dead heart with a new beating heart this morning? Would you illumine our minds? We want to come to know you more. We, we need to see you and hear you and know you more. And God, I, I pray that you would come and that you would renew our faith. Remind us of what we need to hear again today as we read your word. Spirit, come and have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word says this, John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You can be seated. Inside your bulletin is an outline uh, for you to follow along with. Just two points in the message today. And the first one is this. Seeing the spectacular leads to curiosity for many. We're going to look first at verses 43 to 48. If you look at verses 43 through the beginning of 46, it's interesting. I've told you before that when I study the Bible, I like to have a sheet of paper, like old-fashioned paper that comes from a tree uh, with, with pen or pencil or something like that next to me so that I can do the discipline of just observing what's actually there. Before I start applying and interpreting and kind of bringing all my own stuff there, I just want to write down, here's what I'm seeing right there in the text. And so I have one section of my paper that has observations that I'm making, and then I leave a little column on the side for questions, because I don't understand everything right away. Do you, as you read God's Word, do you understand everything right away? I assume not. And there's sometimes things that make you go, hmm. And here in this beginning section uh, of our passage today, there was something that made me pause, and I had to write something in the question side of my sheet of paper. Because I get the beginning, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. This is where Jesus was headed. And remember, he was kind of interrupted by the Samaritans in this conversation. They asked him to stay, and so he stayed for two days. And now he's continuing his travel up north to Galilee. So we we get that. But then, 
John gives us these two statements that don't seem to go together. Because remember where Jesus' hometown was. It was in Galilee, right? It was Nazareth in Galilee. That's the hometown of Jesus. And so, John tells us in verse 44, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. One thing that this is telling us is that even though Jesus knows that he is not going to be honored as he goes to Galilee, he's going there anyway, right? He's going back to his home region. Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But then it says this, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Huh? That's what I said as I read it. Like, okay, so he has no honor in his own hometown, but then when he comes back up to that area, everybody's welcoming him. So which is it? Is he going to have no honor? Is he going to be welcomed? And I read those two words as though they were saying the same thing. And so I had to do some studying, read a lot of what people had to say about this. There's a pretty widespread agreement that we need to note there's a difference between honoring and welcoming. Okay? That he's saying what, what people did not do with Jesus is honor him. Okay? In this region, Jesus was not honored. And to honor someone means that you esteem or exalt them or put them above everything else. And the Galileans were not doing this. They did not look at Jesus and, and put him, exalt him, and esteem him above everything else. But that doesn't mean that they immediately rejected him either. Look at what they did. It says they welcomed him. And that word is, is, is just a, a very, it's kind of at a lesser level than the word honor. Welcoming somebody is just saying, yeah, come on in. They're, they're letting him in. They're not sending him away. They're allowing him in, but they're not honoring him. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so they're saying, Jesus, and why, are, why is it that they're doing that? Why do they allow him in? They're not esteeming him as Lord. They're not hailing him as the Messiah. Not looking at him as the Savior of the world. Remember, the Samaritans, they heard the word of Jesus, and they believed that he's the Savior of the world. But his own people, the Galilean Jews, were only welcoming him in, and it seems like they were welcoming him in because he was kind of a spectacle. They were wondering what this guy is going to do next. Listen to what it says there in verse 45. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Remember, when Jesus was down in Jerusalem, remember what he did in the temple courtyard? He flipped the tables over, sent out, remember all of that? And people from all over the region had gathered there for the feast. And so many of the Galilean Jews had made the trek down. They had seen Jesus do that there. Right? And so they've seen all of this, and so Jesus has become for them kind of this curious spectacle. And so they're interested, what's this guy going to do next? Remember when he flipped out on the people in the temple courts? He, he's coming back here now, and so they welcome him, even though they would not honor him. These people who had been to the feast, it tells us then in verse 46, he came again to Cana in Galilee. Again, he had done a sign and a wonder here. We're told by John the first of his signs and wonders at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Remember that they were out of wine and Jesus took water and had turned the water into a whole lot of really good wine. 
They're wondering, what is Jesus going to do next? But then we find that he's interrupted or he's approached by a desperate dad. It says that at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus... Now, when it says an official, we don't know for sure whether this official is Jew or Gentile. But we know that he is not from there. It says in verse 47, This man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him. Okay, So this man coming from this region... Now, Jesus had just been there, but he must have missed Jesus when he was there, or maybe his son wasn't sick yet. Now his son gets sick. He knows of Jesus' reputation. He's heard that Jesus has gone to Galilee, and this dad, whose son is sick even to the point of death. Did you see that there? He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So put yourself in the shoes of this dad, dads, or moms, or anybody. Son, deathly ill. And this dad, so desperate that he says goodbye to his son, maybe even knowing fully well this could be the last time he sees his son alive, says goodbye to his son and goes to find Jesus traveling through Samaria up into the region of Galilee in order that he might find Jesus and ask Jesus, beg Jesus, would you come down, come back down to Judea and heal my son who's at the point of death? We see a desperate dad, and you might expect that Jesus would immediately respond to this dad. But Jesus, hearing this man's plea, actually turns himself to the crowd. Now, if you're just reading this in English, which is probably what most of us are doing, you might not pick up on who he's talking to. Because we miss things sometimes in translation. And so, as this is written out in Greek, you would find that the you in verse 48, let me go to verse 48 so you can see it here. Jesus said to him, but then he uses the plural form of you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you, again plural, will not believe. So in in kind of proper English, we just kind of have you is always kind of singular, and and you also can mean plural, unless you live in the South. Uh, Then you say y'all, right? And so if this was like a Southern translation of the Bible, it would say y'all, okay? Because it's a plural you. And so Jesus responds to this one man's request by looking to the crowd of Galilean Jews and saying to them, unless... Y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Okay, looking at the crowds, and there's a rebuke here. Jesus knows the hearts of men, we found out at the end of chapter 2, and we've seen that in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. He knows what's going on, and he knows that their faith is about this deep. They're only curious They're coming for the spectacle. They're coming for the show. Give us some entertainment. Give us a healing. Give us some wine. Whatever you can do, we want it. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's rebuking them for trusting only in those things. And so before we move on, a point of application for us. This is is normal for us as humans, isn't it? To be attracted to the spectacular. 
we're attracted to the spectacular. Kirsten and I recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, watched the, the musical movie, The Greatest Showman. Maybe you've watched that. Hugh Jackman's the star, and, and it's a, the, the life story of P.T. Barnum, who uh, really knew how to create a spectacle, right? And so the whole movie itself is kind of a, a spectacle that's supposed to make you go wow, and, and it's about a man who figured out how to make people go wow, kind of reinvents the circus, basically, right? All these spectacle kinds of things that make people come and say, wow. And so, he was just tapping into something that's normal for humans. We're attracted to the spectacular. We love a good show. We like signs and wonders. Those are great. Some implications for the church, though, as we look at Jesus' rebuke of the Galilean Jews. The question I would ask us is this. As a church, is our aim to attract crowds? There's a whole lot of tactics that we could use to attract crowds. You know what attracts crowds? You know what's impressive to people? Impressive buildings, concert-quality bands, Fog and lights, like there's a lot of things that you can do to just try and be really impressive to other people. And and all of those things in and of themselves, it's not wrong to have smoke and lights. It's not wrong to have a great band. It's not wrong uh, to have an impressive building, right? They're not wrong in and of themselves, but our human nature is such that those tools that we use in order to point people to Jesus can sometimes become all that we think about. And we start to focus on those tools and miss the whole point. We do what we can with what God provides, though, instead. So I'm just thinking about, even this morning, kind of a cool illustration of this. I was looking forward to, um, as we sing together, uh, I came in here, and and there's a snare drum set up, a cymbal set up, a cajon set up, all these these different instruments. Like, great, we're going to have, you know, a bigger band today, a fuller sound and that kind of stuff. But then Rachel's three kids all got sick this morning, and Chad's not feeling well. So So we lose the whole percussion section this morning, and so we have to sing with just piano and voices. And, you know, so like, oh, no, we're not going to have this attractive wow. Who cares, right? Our aim is not to have a concert-quality band so that people are calling me always like, hey, can I buy their CD? Can I get the live album of last Sunday's worship service? When are they putting out their next album? Nobody's asked me that. Grateful for uh, the, the skilled and talented musicians that we have, but that's not our goal. Our goal is not how can we make this so wowy that lots of people want to come. That's not our intention. We're not an attractional church trying to draw in crowds by giving them what they want. And so that's even, you know, affected how, I mean, it, you guys have approved and have given in such a way that we can add an additional pastor. So we could have gone after, let's look for a worship pastor uh, who can come in and, and use the skilled musicians that we have and give some leadership so that we can have that kind of something. And we can really wow people on Sunday morning. But we've said, uh, I don't know that that's what God has ultimately called us to as a church. We could do all sorts of things. We could add a lobby with a coffee shop. We could get some fog going and some lights and 
and designed some sets and all of that kind of stuff. But one thing I've just appreciated about this church is that that's not typically what we're all about. At the same time, I recognize that me, some of you, you're maybe like me. You're just kind of naturally competitive. And, and the sinful part of that is we can be envious and prideful. And so I want to I I do the best. I don't think it's wrong to try to be excellent and to, to do the best we can with what God provides. But that can sometimes cross a line into, I'm doing this for me. So do we want to, as a church, attract crowds, or do we want to aim primarily to proclaim the word? Let me tell you one uh, quick story. So uh, my first kind of formal ministry experience as a relatively new believer is I became the prison ministry team leader uh, at Northwestern College in Orange City. And so we would uh, travel to different places, juvenile detention centers, uh, the, the South Dakota State Penitentiary, and we would go places and do prison ministry. And my role as somebody who was training to be a teacher at the time, and somebody who really was just really growing a lot in Christ as a new Christian, they're like, why don't you be the preacher? And so that was kind of some of my first preaching experience was preaching in these environments. And, and so I actually came to the state training school in Eldora. One of the first times I ever preached was just down the road at the state training school in Eldora. And, and so we had this team put together, and my role was going to be to be the teacher uh, and the preacher at the chapel service. And we had another person who was going to lead music with guitar, who was pretty skilled at that. I can't remember what happened. That person couldn't come. I had a guitar uh, and was just trying to teach myself how to do that. And we got there and we told the guy who was the chaplain at the time, uh, <laughs> we, we had like kind of a band thing ready to go. And we just don't have that. We've got me uh, with a guitar and, uh, and I'm going to try and lead these people. And he said something to me at that point that stuck with me as just kind of a, a guy new in ministry that stuck with me all those years because I, I know it probably wasn't very good at all. My preaching probably wasn't very good at all either. But he told me this. He said, and, and this is like not a, I, he didn't invent this phrase, but it was the first time I had heard it and remembered it at least. He said this to me. He said, what you win them with is what you win them to. Okay? What you win them with is what you win them to. So if you want to do something flashy and awesome, and you think that's what these kids need, then they're going to be attracted to and always look for something flashy and awesome. And if it's not flashy and awesome, they're not going to go for it. He said, all I want you to do, if you want to sing, fine. But all I want you to do is proclaim the word of God and trust that God's going to do something with that. Can you do that? Like, well, I can do that. Right? And that stuck with me over time. What you win them with is what you win them to. So here's our desire as a church, I think. I think our desire is not that Jesus would just be tolerated or welcomed like he was amongst the Galilean Jews. Like, yeah, come on in. As long as you can do something for us, as long as you kind of fit a need that I feel in my life, then I'm good with you. That's not our desire. Our desire is that the Spirit of God would work through the Word of God to draw people to God. That we would be a church that would primarily aim to faithfully proclaim the Word. I want to go on because now Jesus is going to, having addressed the crowd, come back to this man who's right before him. Remember this desperate dad. How is Jesus going to respond to him? Verses 49 and 50. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's desperate. And Jesus said to him, 
go, your son will live. That's not what he had asked, right? The man had asked, Jesus, come down with me to Judea or my son will die. But Jesus' response to him is, go, your son will live. Not let's go, not I'm coming with you, just go, your son will live. That's the word of God to this man through the lips of God the Son, Jesus. Go, your son will live. Now listen to this man's response. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That's faith, right? That he has simply heard the word of God from the lips of Jesus himself, saying, go and your son will live. And this desperate dad who has left his sick and dying son to travel up to Galilee is now going to travel all the way back with faith only in the word of Jesus. He hasn't seen anything. But he hears the word and he believes. And so it says he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Imagine this dad. He's not even back home yet, and he gets news from his servants. He's an official, so he's got a large household with not only probably children and a wife, but probably servants here as well. These servants come to him, and they tell him, your son is recovering. And so this dad has a huge smile on his face. He wants to know some details, though. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, uh, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. <laughs> I imagine a little chuckle maybe even coming from this guy. A little smile. The smile gets even bigger on his face as he recalls this. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so this man believes, and it says, and all his household. Household would have included not just family, but servants as well. And then John says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so this man who believed Jesus, having only heard his word, now also gets to have that faith confirmed as he sees not only, hears not only the word of God, but he sees the work of God. And now he and many others in his family believe, assuming that this man shared his testimony with them of what it was that Jesus said to him and who Jesus was. This man did get to see the spectacular work of Jesus, but he believed even before that. And so I want to end with some application of this. Here's the final application point. People need to hear the word and believe the word. It's true that only a few might respond to a simple proclamation of the word of God. You can, you can get people to respond to flashy, attractive, spectacular kinds of things. And only a few might actually respond to a simple proclamation of the Word of God. Another story. When I was a youth pastor, I got to be a youth pastor for seven and a half years before we came here. And during that time, I sought to, in a pretty non-flashy kind of way, just regularly proclaim the Word of God to 7th through 12th grade students. And by God's grace, we got to see many come to faith in Jesus, and many of them grow in their faith and learn even to share that faith with other people. It was good. 
saw God's grace in many ways. But one of the kind of components that's often around in youth ministry is we need to do something big and impressive sometimes. And so some of the other youth pastors in town, we got together and we determined we needed to bring a big wow kind of Christian concert to our town. And so we did that. So we had, I can't even remember who the band was, had a big band come in, rented out a space in town that was relatively small, and we packed the place out. So almost all students uh, gathered in this place, and there was fog, and there was lights, and the music was loud, and our ears were ringing, and all of that kind of stuff going on in this Christian concert. And everybody's kind of amped up, and a speaker jumps up on the stage, and he says something like this. Has anyone in here ever been hurt before? you got a room full of teenagers. They're, they're going through a lot of hard stuff. And so hands shoot up. Anyone in here been down and know that you're in need of help? And more hands shoot up. And he says, keep your hand up in the air, and one of our volunteers will walk around and hand you something. So now he's giving away free stuff for anybody that has their hand up in the air. So more hands go up, right? So you've got hands up all around um, this uh, little space that we had rented out. And then he says, if you've got your hand up in the air, I want you to keep your hand up in the air. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. And he starts praying this stuff, and he pauses for people to repeat it after him. And he gets done, and he says, amen, and he says, now I want to welcome everybody who has their hands in the air to the family of God. You can never be snatched away. You are sealed forever and saved by God's grace. And there's a problem with all of that because the thing was he never presented the gospel. He got people to raise their hands by, by having them say, have you ever been hurt? Do you need help? Well, yeah. I'm a human, right, who's a teenager. And so everybody, and then if you want free stuff, keep your hand up. And so, so there's this message that's going out, and I'm, I'm standing there wondering how to respond to this kind of thing. And it's that spectacular kind of stuff that in the moment, everybody's all hyped up. And, 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 and so, yeah, put my hand up, and it's spectacular. This was an awesome night. And, and by that, I mean, it would look like probably three-quarters of the high school was saved if what that guy was saying was true. But I knew that that wasn't true. Most of us know it standing there knew that that wasn't true. That's the spectacular kind of stuff that seems to attract people to Jesus for a time. But then another hurt comes, some disease comes, some tragedy strikes, some friends head in another direction. And it's so easy to just say, well, Jesus isn't helping. It's not advantageous to me anymore. I'm not caught up in the moment, so I'm done with that. Problem is, they never heard the word of God. They never heard the gospel and believed the gospel. And the truth is that if you look only for the spectacular, you may miss the cross. Because the cross doesn't seem all that spectacular. You're not saved by being attracted to or intrigued by Jesus. Our faith in Jesus cannot be based on how often He heals and how often He answers our prayers in miraculous, spectacular kinds of ways. But our faith in Jesus is based on the Word of God. That's all the Samaritans had to hear. These who had kind of been misdirected most of their lives simply heard the Word of God and turned to Him and said, Jesus is the Savior of the world. But these Galilean Jews, they needed another sign, another wonder, something spectacular. 
the good news is this, that Jesus is the man of sorrows, who the Lamb of God who by his own was betrayed. That the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. That's, that's the gospel. Not that Jesus is going to heal you of all your diseases if you just believe hard enough. But Paul summed it up this way in 1 Corinthians 15. The good news is that Christ died for our sins in, uh, in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the good news. And how are you to respond to that good news? The very last verse in John chapter 3. Remember what that said? Whoever believes in the Son has life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The good news is that you can hear the gospel and respond in faith. And then you can sing with great joy and confidence. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so it is not wrong to pray for and expect that God can do signs and wonders. Can He heal? Of course He can heal. Should we pray for healing? Yes, pray for healing. Pray for signs and wonders. But our faith is not based on whether or not we see God acting in those spectacular ways. But our faith is based on the Word of God that tells us the good news of the Gospel. That sinners can be saved by God's grace. And so, personal proclamation is more powerful than public spectacle. That's a lot of P's there. A personal proclamation is more powerful than public spectacle. So as a church, it's my desire that we would invest our resources individually and all together as a church in equipping us as a church for personal proclamation of the gospel. Rather than asking you to give all your time and money to help us put on a great public spectacle, we want to give our time and our resources and everything God gives to us in order that we might learn to and be equipped to personally proclaim the word of God to people who need to hear it and believe. And you know what? I haven't been a part of the church for all that long, but as I look back on the church's history, by God's grace, many people have come to faith in Jesus and trained as disciples of Jesus through a church that serves relatively bad coffee in a relatively unimpressive building. Right? Amen? I'll say it again. By God's grace, many people have come to faith and been raised up as disciple-makers of Jesus through a church that serves relatively bad coffee in a relatively unimpressive building. Right? It works. Coffee's fine. Building's fine. Right? We're not aiming at doing something that's going to wow everybody. Our primary aim is that we would raise up people who can serve as Awana volunteers and proclaim the good news to little children. To raise up Sunday school teachers who will faithfully week in and week out proclaim the gospel to children, to youth, and to adults. God grows the church when the word of God is proclaimed not just from a pulpit, but through Awana volunteers, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, life group leaders, and men's groups and women's groups. That's how God builds the church. So church, may we remain committed to that so that many more in our community 
would hear the word of God and believe the word of God and by God's grace be saved. Let's pray. God, would you make that what we're about as a church? Would you help us to remember that calling to stay true to that commitment? That we would faithfully and personally with people that we work with and people that we go to school with, people that we live with and people that we live around, just be a people that faithfully proclaim the word of God and fervently pray that as we proclaim the word of God, your spirit would be stirring up hearts, that people who are dead in sin would be born again, that your spirit would truly come and awaken our hearts and illumine our minds and magnify Jesus Christ, that, that no longer would we be satisfied with people in our church and people in our community being okay with Jesus, welcoming him in as long as he can do something for them but that we would desire ourselves and that we would desire to see other people mainly concerned that Jesus would be honored and esteemed as Lord, as Savior of the world. God, help us to be driven by that in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand and we'll sing a closing song together.